0: 7.5 fm we are savannah soundings community radio with a global soul um our theme music is a clip of summer nights by the eric jones trio it's provided by our friend mark Chesneau, who plays with the eric jones trio every thursday and sunday at good times jazz bar downtown
1: hey welcome to arts on the air this is tamara garvey and melissa taylor
0: Welcome back. Yeah, um, we're here this week with Taylor Brown. He's going to be our first Yay! writer on the show, which is so exciting.
1: Historic moment.
0: Welcome. <laughs> um, so Taylor is an award-winning novelist. Um, he actually was the Georgia Author of the Year for Fiction for 2021, which is very exciting. Um, he has work that's appeared in the New York Times and Garden and Gun, and his newest novel is Wingwalkers, and he also happens to be one of my favorite people, so <laughs> this is very
2: <laughs>
1: Exciting! <laughs> all the best artists and creatives and talent are all the best people. It's so true. They're all our friends. Hundred um, percent.
0: So we're just gonna jump in. All right. So you grew up in Georgia, but you grew up on the coast, and you've circled back. Um, what brought you
3: to Savannah specifically? Honestly, uh, the bookstore here, East Shaver, was a big part of it. Um, I came. I think it was 2018. I was on book tour for my novel, Gods of Howl Mountain. And I had an event at E. Shaver, and I had a couple of dead days on the tour that where I didn't have anything to do, and so I thought I'd just hang out in Savannah, and I brought my bicycle, and I rode all around town, and I just, I just loved it. There was yes. just something about it. I hung out a day in Bonaventure Cemetery. I hung out a day riding all around the squares downtown. Um, and it had just a home feel to it, because I grew up on St. Simons, mm-hmm. and we didn't come up to Savannah a lot, but, you know, the live oaks, the squares, all of that, the, the Spanish moss that just kind of, you know, that's that goes deep for me. Right. Yeah. So it just <laughs> feels like home. It's a lot of people I grew up with. This is, you know, where they come when they get older. And so there's people here that I know. And I just started coming to visit with my partner, Addie Joe, and she fell in love with it, too. And I mean, Savannah really is this magic blend of this this old timeless beauty and this creative energy that you mm-hmm. can really feel you know yeah. and um it just seems to draw whether it's scad or just savannah itself just draws creative folks and we felt that And mm-hmm. just love that blend really drew us i think you know
0: yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started working at the shop, like you guys would come in and visit all the time. And then the, the one time you visited, um, you told me that you were looking for places to live here and it was very exciting. <laughs> um, so on your, uh, in your bio on your website, it says that you've also lived in Buenos Aires. What, what was that about? How did
3: that happen? <laughs> so it's funny how that all came about. So I graduated, um, undergrad 2005 from the university of georgia and i was an english major and i wasn't really sure what i was going to do with my life you know um and i thought maybe i would take the gre and go into academia and but i started my first novel not the first novel that was published the first (laughs) novel that i wrote right (laughs) um that will never see the light of day there were two that came before fallen land um that are buried deep down in my computer. I should probably password protect them. You know, so pr- they're pretty bad. I think probably I haven't looked back in years. But somebody
1: hacks that and releases. Yeah, I know.
3: I know. They're going to be uh,
0: they're <laughs> going to be released posthumously and be amazing hits.
3: <laughs> you wonder about that sometimes, right? If yeah. these authors are like rolling in their graves, like I never wanted anyone to read that. There was a reason yeah. I didn't release that. Yeah. <laughs> but so I started this novel and. I wanted to be able to continue working on it, and I had read uh, Hemingway's Immovable Feast about 1920s Paris, yes, and I had this idea of where could I go in the world that um, art is appreciated and writers and has culture, but I could also scrape by and wouldn't be super expensive. Because most big cities anywhere in the world are. And right. f- from some research, I just kind of came across Buenos Aires as maybe this place that I could go get my certification to teach English as a foreign language and kind of, you know, and and, and live there. I had very little Spanish. I had public school in Georgia's Spanish. <laughs> uh, and one semester in college. Um, I had spent most of college taking Arabic and Old English. Um, wow. Because <laughs> Old so English is cry. one of those it's, things that's going to be super useful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, so I sold my car and I used the funds to move to Buenos Aires. And as crazy and as impulsive and overly romantic as the notion sounds, you know, my reasons for doing it, it was perfectly what I was looking for at the time.
0: Uh, So, like, the only... Visual I have for Buenos Aires is um, the movie of Evita with mm-hmm. Madonna in it. Just like a picture you, just like tangoing your way through like yes.
3: politicians.
0: There was not much
3: tangoing. Yeah, my my life was a little bit more gritty and, and uh, closer to the sidewalks than that. I, I would say, but um, fair enough. It was. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful city. The people are amazing. Um, you know, I love to ride in cafes, mm-hmm. and it's a cafe culture. Like, right. if you're in, you know, Spain or Portugal or France, you know, it has that same, the, the cafes are open, it seemingly all night, and, um, I could always find my clean, well-lighted place where I could work, you know? I was that. actually
1: going to ask you also if you learned to tango there, because <laughs> like my dream of going to Buenos Aires and learning to tango. Yeah.
3: But so, yeah. I did not, but I do have a friend that I met, uh, Jacob Sugarman, who, um, uh, was also on the same program to, uh get our certification to teach English as a foreign language and he if I'm getting the story right he went to go take tango lessons and he's now been uh, married for many years to uh, his the tango yeah, yeah I mean I'm met, just saying so. oh, you can't tango with someone and not fall in love <laughs>
1: <laughs> how, how long did you live there for?
3: To be honest, I was only there about eight months. My 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 goal was a year that I wanted uh, to stay there, and then I started to run low on money, and I honestly started to get homesick. Yeah. And I took a job in California and moved out there, and then at that point basically entered the business world. And for years, up until now still, you know, have kind of one foot in the business world and one foot in the literary world. Not There's not overlap, but... Um, that's where that really started for me,
1: like
3: the day job kind of world. The day job,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said you majored um, in English, so didn't specifically study writing when you were going
3: to school. I did not. I did. Uh, I never. I've still never taken a creative writing class, actually. <laughs> uh, I've taught creative writing classes, but I haven't. <laughs> you don't um, need them. You're fine. I haven't taught them. Um, I think that in some ways that would have accelerated my. Uh, development, but I also probably would have shaped it in ways that that it didn't, mm-hmm. um, if I had. But yeah, and I, I do look back. I think if I look, would look back at my early work. There's a little bit of too much this academic intellectualizing to it mm-hmm. that came from academic writing, probably because that's what I'd done for you mm-hmm. know my undergraduate career. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave me a great um, base of so much reading and thinking about you know, thinking about books, thinking about literature, why they're constructed the way they are, what they mean, why it's important. All those questions are the same questions, you know, a lot of the same questions that we as the writers ourselves, you know, think about. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a great base, and I'm still a huge proponent of liberal arts uh, degrees and English specifically. I think it's hard to find... Something else that teaches you to, you know, communicate well, to articulate your thoughts, to um, to, to, to analyze something in that way. Mm-hmm. And I will say that it's been uh, interesting to me how many folks in the business world that I have... Uh, looked up to, and then realized that they had like a comp lit background mm-hmm. or an English background. Tons of that when I lived in California in the .dot com world, like people who were yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, you majored in comp- comparative lit, you know? <laughs> I, like I love it, you know? Yeah. Not a business major.
0: Yeah. Well, that's uh, my husband used to teach English um, at a technical college for a while, and um, one of the big things that he had to fight with with students was like, why do I have to take English classes? I want to be a welder. And he was like, you need to be able to communicate articulately in whatever field you're in. Like just being able to write a professional email is going to help you in your life. <laughs> I see this
3: every day, honestly, because my day job is largely serving as editor in chief for Bikebound, which is a <laughs> custom motorcycle, uh, publication, online publication. And, you know, Uh, we feature bikes, uh, from men and women who work in workshops and they do, that is what they do is they weld, they fabricate, they build a lot of these bikes from scratch and the bikes go so much farther when they have a story to tell behind them. Mm -hmm. And you can really tell the difference between someone that knows how to tell a story and to communicate it and someone that doesn't, because I give them the same interview questions. Mm -hmm. I, I have this, uh, you know, if you ever watch, uh, James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. Yeah. Um, we'll get to oh, that later. Yeah. Don't we'll worry. <laughs> if he mean, had this questionnaire at the end, it's the same questions. Yeah. And that yeah. was my favorite part. Mm-hmm. And I always wish there was a show that was like that only with, you know, writers mm-hmm. or with artists that was on TV and that everyone could watch, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I like that idea of asking the same questions. So I ask the same questions. And it's interesting when someone can really answer them well and shape that story mm-hmm. um absolutely
1: yeah the part where you're talking about that on the job people can have maybe they're working this very technical job but they studied english and you find that they did it better it's almost like like maybe you needed to be formally taught things like english and language and then these other technical things you could sort of learn on the job and do that and it's better to you know maybe like not have learned technical things in school it doesn't get you as far i don't know i'm just
0: um so how did you then go from where you were working in
3: business to writing? Like what made you decide to do that? So I really kept them both going in parallel. I have my whole life done Mm -hmm. that. Um, and that has not been easy, but the way that I've done it is just through, um, being pretty strict about my writing time and having that every day. So, You know, when I was working in my 20s and very high stress business uh, jobs, you know, eight to six uh, jobs, I would go either before work or after work or during my lunchtime. I'd work on the weekends. You know, I would go. I remember there was a Borders Books back then that was close to the office, you know, and I would go there for my lunch. Mm -hmm. And I would uh, we had like a half an hour lunch, not an hour lunch. And I would still go up Mm -hmm. there and. Like order my sandwich and sit down and I would work for that half an hour and and eat my sandwich while I worked. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just it's what I thought of as the margins of life. Mm -hmm. You know, there are all these kind of areas where they're kind of dead time where you might just go have a drink at the bar after work. Well, I would go have a drink at the bar and work Mm -hmm. or I would have that coffee on my way into work to the office and I would work. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, and I would do it on a, I would do it on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept working in tandem with that. And just over time, you know, I think it took three years to get my first short story published. And it was about 10 years of working, um, that I got my first, before I got my first book published, mm-hmm. my collection of short stories. Okay. And then my first novel came a couple years after that. So it was just it was nose to the grindstone, That's a long though. time to
1: be chipping away. It was.
3: It. And, and I, I'm, I will say I made a lot of sacrifices. You know, when I think back to my 20s, you know, I lived in California for five or six years, and I never went to L.A. I lived in San Francisco. I never went to L.A. I never went to Vancouver. I never went anywhere. Yeah. You know, I just worked. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, San
0: Francisco is not a terrible place to be, That's true. Though. That's very true. <laughs>
3: yeah. That's very true. But, yeah. Um,
1: that, what you were talking about, where even if you just have a few minutes to kill to get into the writing, that's also hard because not everybody can just like delve right into it very quickly like that. So that I'm sure that helped as well.
3: I think so. I think that when you do it regular, it's easier to to delve into it because yeah. you know if you've only got a certain amount of time. I have found, at least for me, that that. Doing it certain times a day and doing it kind of in a in a in a almost ritualistic way, mm-hmm. it gets you there faster oh, yeah, than you if you just yourself. tried to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. and and I have found that there's something when you have less time, that sometimes better stuff comes out because you're under pressure. Because mm-hmm. you only have so much time to mm-hmm. write. <laughs> that um, was my whole college career. I was yeah. like, I oh, wait till the last minute because I need that pressure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a bad influence on anyone, but I remember when I first got to college, I would write papers. You know like, well ahead of time, you know, because I like didn't want to be stressed and all that. And, and, you know, toward the end, it was like, all right, I'm going to spe- stay up all night, you know, this yeah. paper about cubism, and I'm going to, you know, and they, and they came out, they seemingly came out better. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, some people um, just work
3: better with that, like, that push, like, you just need that pressure to work better. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: like, you were talking about, you know, that you're very regimented about your writing schedule, and, uh, like, we've kind of talked about how... Like, you have certain places that you go around town, and you're here from this time to this time, and you're, you know, like, you're working, um, and and that's every day?
3: Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Seven days a week.
0: Okay. Um, Do you, when you're working on a novel, do you plan the whole thing out completely? Are you, like... A plotter or a pantser?
3: I think wow. if I get if I get what those <laughs> terms mean, I'm not sure what this says about me, but I think I'm a pantser. If that means kind By of seat, seat of the of pants. pants. Yeah. Yes. Um, I operate under, there's a quote that has stayed with me for a very long time. It's E.L. Dr. L And it's, he said, writing a novel is like driving at night. You can only see 500 feet ahead, but you can get the whole way there. Okay. And that has been the way that I've operated. I have tried to plan it all out ahead of time. I think it partly has to do, it's just not how my brain works. Okay. I'm not good at seeing it from the bird's eye view so well. I'm, I'm better at seeing it from like a character's more diminished point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't work as well for me. And when I've tried it, I felt as if I was writing to a, um, you know, to this framework and it came out wooden. It just didn't feel alive to me in the same way that when I don't know what's gonna happen, everything feels a little bit more on the ragged edge. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, that's a way <laughs> more anxiety-ridden process. Sure. If you don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> right. Literally, I remember writing Fallen Land, you know, and it, and it's this it's a it's like a chase novel. Mm-hmm. It's you know, they're on the run. And there were times when I I didn't know what was around the next bend, just like they didn't. And to me that I wasn't doing that on purpose, but looking back now, I think it suffused it with more uh, a more visceral sense of danger because I felt it. I remember I would get up from a writing session on that novel, and I would have like that anxiety, like mm-hmm. sweat, you know, that I I felt because I was there yeah. too.
0: Well, there definitely is a like. I mean, like it increases the dramatic tension, like you know, because you can feel that in that novel. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. How do you know, like? in that example where you're writing this long chase scene, like how do you know how long to drag that out for and when to start bringing it to a close that it's going to read well?
3: Um, that's hard. I think part of that is, is gut feeling, is, is trusting your gut, and some of that the instincts that really just come over time of having done it enough and made enough mistakes and not getting it right, that you have a better feel for getting it right, mm-hmm. has been part of it. Two, one of the beautiful things about writing is that you do get to revise. So if you don't get it right, you can change it. Um, And I don't think about that. I'm always trying to get it right the first time. Whenever I'm writing it, I am trying to get it perfect that time, even the first draft, for the most part. Mm -hmm. Not to the extent that it makes me never get it done and I spend 10 minutes on every (laughs) sentence, but I am, in my head, going for that to some degree. But deep down, I know that even if it's probably not there, you know. Mm-hmm. Very rarely is it there yet, but does that make sense? Yeah, and so, yeah. but I, but at some point I know that's a tough balance, you know, because you want to get it right, but you also know that you can revise it at some point.
0: Mm-hmm. Um so, even if you don't plan the whole thing out, like do you have like with your books, do you do you start at the beginning? Do you start with a scene that you've kind of visualized because I know everybody sort of does it in a, in a different way. Like I know lots of people like like to start with the ending so they know how to get like where they're going mm-hmm. um and then do the beginning last which always sounds counterintuitive to me but how does that work for you
3: um generally i have a pretty good idea of the ending at least part way through okay. so i kind of know where i'm going mm-hmm. um i'm not exactly sure how i'm going to get there but it's like uh i thought of it like um if you had, like, a slope and you, you like, pour water down it, you don't know how it's going to run all differently down that slope, but I know where that it's going to come down to, like, this pool at the bottom, mm-hmm. right? And I have an idea of where that is. Um, so, generally, I, I, I don't always start with that. Sometimes I just start with a character or I start with a story that's not the full story, but a story that's going to intersect with some other stories I know. Mm-hmm. And they have all been different, and I think that's good because... Um, it keeps it interesting you know i think Mm -hmm. otherwise it might become formulaic yeah but again it can be and i you know you'd be surprised when you get you know writers get together and they have a you know a couple drinks and they're telling (laughs) their, you know they're commiserating and how often they feel as if they're starting a new novel or they're working on and they feel like i feel like i've never done this before Mm -hmm. right like i thought You know, I feel like you have
1: a different process each book you write.
3: Yes, and you end up feeling lost at some point in that process, Mm -hmm. no matter how many times you've done it. Mm -hmm. I think the more you do it, you develop a faith to know that this is part of the process to feel lost, or to feel this doubt, or to not know where you're going, or to worry that, you know, you're driving in the middle of the night and you've gotten lost and you're not going to find your way out. Right? Like Mm -hmm. I have felt that way probably. In most of the books. And I think if you talk to other authors, whether they want to admit it or not, they have to. But again, to me, maybe that adds more meaning to the book because it's not this manufactured thing. I mean, it is a real adventure slash crucible every Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. At least it is for me. Yeah.
1: When I get halfway through every single painting, they always look really bad in the middle. They're like, I call them like awkward teenagers. And I always panic and I think, oh God, I'm not gonna be able to bring this one home. It's not gonna work. It looks really bad. This has been such a waste of time. Every single painting is like that in the middle. And they all end up either good to great as far as how I feel about them. But every single time in the middle, I get worried about them. And I never, and yeah, I should, and I say to myself, self, just remember this next time. You'll be nervous about it, but I still will be nervous next time. Yeah.
3: That's so, because I've been thinking about this a lot because I found myself in that very similar place as you multiple times. And, um, in some ways it's a good lesson for life because we find ourselves there in life, you Mm -hmm. know, and we have to just kind of trust that we will find our way out of, you know, whatever mess we have found ourselves in or, the disappointment or the loss, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, as my dad used to say, uh, I mean, Churchill's the one who originally said it, when you're going through hell, your dad Churchill? keep going. <laughs> yes. yes. Wow. That's a great thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I think about that more than I would like yeah, sometimes when it comes to, um, to the work,
1: I think maybe if and you're of things, if it's not, bad and weird and
3: scary in the middle. Maybe you haven't pushed it enough. I do. I think there's something to that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so most of your novels are historical. Um, and I know you do a lot of research cause I've, I've heard you talk about it before. Um, can you tell us what your research process is like? And I'm sure it's probably different for each novel because they all deal with different things, but, but how does that work for you?
3: Um, yeah, I think that Um, It's funny, a a lot of my work has now, you know, has this historical element to it, which is not something I've really set out to do, but Mm -hmm. I think that I just find myself interested by it. I don't know, somehow I'm I'm pulled toward it Um, in the ways in which history can speak to, you know, what's happening in in the present in an interesting way. But the research process for me, I found, works better if... The way that I do it is so, some people get really worried about research. They think of it as this whole fortress of books that they have to read before they can even get started because they have to know every last thing about whatever the subject matter is. And honestly, it's not just history. It's if you're writing about a contemporary work about a subject area that you don't know about, like some kind of, like well, there's wildlife in it or some kind of yeah. science element. And what I found, not just for me, but from other author saying this is that it's generally better if you don't read all of that all ahead of time because it will end up being kind of a wall toward your own ability to get in there and create Mm -hmm. because it kind of takes away some of the mystery and it's better to read enough that you get and this is what i do enough that i have a pretty good feel for the as if i've taken a class Mm -hmm. like a single class on this subject matter but not as if I've done my whole PhD and thesis on it. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I have a pretty good idea of the landscape of it and where to look mm-hmm. when I need to know more.
0: Yeah. So basically, it's like you have a broad view of what you're doing. And then when you have a specific question, you can go and look that up at the time that you need it. But you're not like so focused in on every little aspect of what you're doing that it, you know, kind of handicaps you. I think it really
3: can. Uh, Nina de Germont, when she was here, she's the one who wrote, uh, a friend of mine, and she wrote The Christie Affair, mm-hmm. about that 11 days in Agatha Christie's life where she kind of disappeared off the map, and and we don't know what happened. And when she was here for Savannah Book Festival, she said she tried to write a similar book about Emily Dickinson, but she knew so much about Emily Dickinson because she'd studied her that she couldn't do it. She couldn't... There was. Well, one, Emily Dickinson was too precious to her, right. as she said. She, she you know, uh, maybe there's a guilt or something with fictionalizing anything. Where Agatha, she'd read some of her books that she didn't know as much about. And mm-hmm. so she had more kind of leeway, more freedom. And to me, that's the interesting part anyway, is, is getting into those dark areas that you don't know and, and letting your imagination run and trying to fill in the gaps.
1: I think, yeah, I think that's... That makes complete sense. Do you have a, a certain amount of time that you would do research before you start
3: writing? No, I've never really thought about it like that. It's been it, I would say it's more of an instinctual thing where I okay. feel like I'm ready, yeah. you know, to oh, start yeah. or at least with whatever part of it, you know. Yeah. And then sometimes I'm not sure where the story's going to lead, so there I don't know what I would need to read ahead of time. All of a sudden, um, i realize realized they're going to go to this country or they I'm going to need to know they're going to be on this kind of airplane. And I don't, you know what I'm, what's the inside of a flying of a, of a, you know, of the Pacific Clipper look like Mm -hmm. in 1942 that flies from the U S to Lisbon, Portugal, you know, Mm -hmm. twice a month, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know I was going to need to know that you can find that, but does that make sense? So part of it to me is fun because there's that discovery element. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that. Is part of it. you know some people hate research, and to me, it's like a treasure hunt. Sometimes you yeah. know, I have fun uncovering. Sounds yeah. like the books things.
1: are. It's a reason for you to delve into some topic you want to learn about.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you were talking about. Um, characters
0: and sort of you sometimes you'll start from having an idea of a character like what's the process of creating a character like for you because I've heard other authors talk about it sometimes and sometimes they'll be like you know like the character is talking to me and they're telling the story and I'm just writing down what they're saying and so so how how do you have that like
3: what is that process for me I, I generally when I have a character, I just start writing. And I don't do the kind of character sketch thing where I just write all about them. Some people write a whole biographical sketch about them so they kind of know who they are first. I like to discover as I go along, and then I'll go back in later and fill in gaps when I when I know more. But I'm kind of learning who they are as it as it goes along to some degree. And I generally know that I've really found them when they start behaving in ways that I didn't expect. Because then I know they're more like a real person. Because... You know, I think that people, as much as we like to say so-and-so does something and they're predictable, you know, human beings are weird and do crazy stuff. And generally, I find that when a character, I think they're going to do one thing, and I'll just get to some point in the book, and they do the exact opposite thing that I would have thought they would have done two weeks ago. And when they do it, it's like there's no going back. I know that there's no other thing they could do. They just do it. It just comes so naturally, and I'm like, okay, I've I've kind of found them, or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they have become something more than my own. I don't know how this works, but something they seemingly have become something more than my own creation in their own, their own person or something. I don't hear them talk to me like some people say and I think that maybe has, you know I think maybe when you write first person Mm -hmm. there's more so that, which I I don't do very often.
0: I'm fascinated and so impressed. It's
3: interesting (laughs) to me sometimes to I think take someone who on the outside looks maybe a little bit stereotypical, like you know, like a, a Backwoods Moonshiner, right? Or uh, like Granny May in Gods of Hell Mountain. Mm-hmm. Like, the, um, you know, she's this folk healer. And that's a recurring character that you'll find in, you know, uh, Appalachian fiction and that kind of thing. What if when you take that character and you really start to get inside of them, right? And that's what's interesting to me because we generally too often probably see people on the street or people that we don't know that well and we stereotype them all the time. Mm-hmm. We don't really know them. And... To me, kind of when you're writing a character, it's like getting to really know someone.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And that process isn't always easy, and it's not always quick, and just like it would, you know, similarly to real life, right? Mm -hmm. And when they start to do things I didn't expect, I feel like I'm learning more about them.
0: Well, and the most interesting characters are never the characters that are, like, stereotypical or behave in a stereotypical way. Like, I mean, those are just boring to read about. Absolutely.
1: I think we are going to take a short break and hear some station announcements, and we will be back with Taylor Brown.
0: You are listening to WRUULP Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with a Global
4: Soul. Trees are one of Chatham County's most treasured natural resources. Beyond their beauty and cultural significance, The impact of trees are far-reaching and compounding, spanning from economic benefits to health improvements to climate change resilience. Trees are woven into every aspect of our lives. Savannah Tree Foundation protects and grows Chatham County's urban forest through tree planting, community engagement, and advocacy. More information is available at savannatree.org. This portion of WRUU's programming is brought to you by listeners and by Brighter Day Natural Foods. Brighter Day Natural Foods has been serving Savannah's healthy food and supplement needs since 1978. It is located at the corner of Bull Street and Park Avenue. They have online ordering and curbside delivery available. And now a walk-up window for smoothies, juices, and sandwiches from the deli. They are open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. More information can be found at BrighterDayFoods.com.
0: What does it mean when we say that WRUU is a community radio station? It doesn't just mean that we invite the community to create programming. And it doesn't just mean that we're a voice for the community. It also means that we're counting on the community to keep us going. And you are the community. Almost all of our modest budget comes from small annual or monthly donations from listeners like you. You get to enjoy our community-focused programming because many others have stepped forward to do their part. Now do your part by joining our community of listener donors. Go to wruu.org right now and make a one-time or monthly donation. And thank you for supporting Savannah's community radio station, 107.5 FM. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with Taylor Brown. um, And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about Wingwalkers, which is your newest book, um, and how that story came about.
3: Yeah. So that story really started, interestingly enough, in a bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores, uh, Square Books in um, Oxford, Mississippi. I was there. 2016 was my first ever book tour. And I was walking around the store, and they have all this kind of literary memorabilia on the walls, and I saw this picture of William Faulkner on the wall. But it wasn't the picture of Faulkner that we would normally see, or pictures like what we would normally see of, you know, this Faulkner with gray hair and a pipe and looking very distinguished, like this old Don of Southern literature. He looked like he was just out of his teens, and he was wearing an RAF uniform. And he had, he had this rattan cane like cocked at his hip, and he had his cap kind of set on bold, and he had a little hand-rolled cigarette <laughs> sticking out the corner of his mouth. And I was just fascinated by this, this image of him, and I wanted to learn more. And I had loved Faulkner in college. Um, I had a professor who was Dr. Hubert McAlexander, who I ended up dedicating wing walkers to. He taught Faulkner at the University of Georgia. And I remember there was a lot of aviation in Faulkner's early work, and so I just wanted to learn more. So I started looking into Faulkner's life from this angle, and it was just like I had found this treasure trove up in the attic of Roanoke, and I was finding all of these stories that I were almost unbelievable. You know, uh, a balloonatic, as they called it, an early hot air balloonist in 19—I think this was 08—so eight—had so Faulkner was 10—had uh, crash-landed on the hen house at the house that they grew up in. Uh, a few years later, he took plans for a model airplane out of a boys' magazine, expanded them to make it life size for like a hundred pound boy, and built it with his brothers out of like bean pole, his mother's bean poles, and wrapping <laughs> paper, and they launched it off this bluff behind the house and crashed. You know, I and mean, these totally <laughs> like radio flyer stuff. And then, uh, as a heartbroken, you know, um, late teen or I think he was in his early twenties, he left Oxford and he wanted to be a fighter pilot in World War One. And he went off uh, and he joined the RAF in Canada. That's how the U ended up in his name. Faulkner was uh, it was spelled F-A-L-K-N-E-R was the family name. He put the U in there because he thought it would look more British. Because he thought he had to be a British citizen to uh, join the RAF. That's
2: amazing.
3: Um, he forged a, uh, a recommendation letter from an English vicar and had it mailed from a friend in London to the RAF enlistment office. Wow. I mean, it's wild. So he didn't earn his wings, the, the, the war ends, and he comes back to Oxford, and uh, he comes back in an officer's uniform, uh, affecting a limp he said he got in a crash, and all of these, telling all these tall tales. So said he had a metal plate in his head, you know, the only metal they gave me, he would say. <laughs> Anyways, all these wild stories, but aviation was a big part of his work. And uh, I was just fascinated by that. My father was a pilot. I grew up around aviation. It was something that that I've always loved. I felt like there was some story here waiting to be told beyond Faulkner himself. And in digging through it, uh, in his biography, I found this snippet where in 1934, Faulkner went to the opening of the Shushan Airport in New Orleans, which is now the Lakefront Airport. And there was this huge to-do at the time. They opened it during Mardi Gras. uh, Marty Gras was all aviation-themed. They had air races and barnstorming and all this. And Faulkner didn't come home one night, the last night. He didn't come home, and he turned up the next morning, and he was hungover, and he said that he had spent the night flying, carousing, and partying with uh, these two aviators from the meet, a man and a woman. Um, and we don't know the content of that tale and what the, who they were. All that's lost to history. All we know is that he came home and told this tale the meat of which we don't know. So I decided to reimagine who those aviators slash motorcyclists were and how their lives intersected with Wagner, and that became Wingwalkers. So that's a roundabout way of telling you <laughs> that the novel um, follows Della the Daring uh, and her husband, Captain Zeno Marigold, and they have a barnstorming troop. Della is a Wingwalker. Zeno is a pilot. He was an ace in World War One. And they're trying to make their way across the country out to California. They're trying to get into film because all these big aerial films are being made. Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes, they're all making these big films. And they got this dilapidated biplane and it's the Depression and they're trying to make their way across the country and it's about how their lives intersect with Faulkner's.
0: Amazing. My favorite uh, review that I read for for this book described it as muscular prose. <laughs> Which I was like is yeah. Faulkner-like? Fox, <laughs> um, so, can you tell us anything about what you're working on now?
3: Um, I'll tell you a little bit. Since it's you, Melissa, and we have <laughs> shared history about this, yeah. <laughs> um, I've been working for several years to expand a short story that was originally published at the Bitter Southerner called Rednecks. Oh yeah, (laughs) and uh, it's set during the Battle of Blair Mountain in nineteen twenty one, when ten thousand coal miners in West Virginia rose up against uh, the coal companies and who were employing uh, what were called gun thugs, basically private detectives, a whole private army that were keeping them from unionizing. Mm -hmm. A million rounds were fired, bombs were dropped on American soil, trench warfare, and hardly anyone knows that this history exists mm-hmm. literally on book tour I asked, everyone asked you know what I'm working on now and I asked at every single event and there was one person in 15 or probably 15 or 18 events that had heard of the Battle of Blair Mountain, mm-hmm. which I was kind of in some ways excited about because I'm excited to yep. you know tell the story um and the story is that they wore red neckerchiefs to identify themselves mm-hmm. and that's one way that the word redneck sprang into American oh, slang yep. it existed before that it did but it um it said that that's when it really became more popular because yeah. um, they called them rednecks.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to read this Like, um, because my, my cousin is actually um, one of the people who opened the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Oh. Um, so so this is very
3: exciting. <laughs> Melissa put me in touch with her, who put me in yeah. touch with the folks there when I went up to do research who were really helpful that's and fantastic. all that you stuff. you get to so. go there and do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and one of my uh, closest readers, collaborators, editors is a guy named Jason Fry who's from Logan, uh, West Virginia, which is where the Battle of Blair Mountain happened.
1: Can I ask, I was wondering how you come up with your character names. Is that fun? Is that that,
3: fun? that is something that I find fun, and I and I have a hard time when I read something and the character names are a little bit too boring. Like it's hard to, uh, or if they're just names that are really common. Like most of us have fairly common names, but. We also know other people that have these. So, like, if there's a certain name in it, sometimes I've known, you know, a a so-and-so. And and, and it's hard for me to separate from that. So, it's like I won't want them to be too far out there. And I want them to say something sometimes about the person's character. I kind of do like a name to do that a little bit, you know, subtly. So, I do find that that's kind of fun. But also tough sometimes when I can't seem to find the right...
1: He has right. Like a hey, it's like I can't move forward, rare versus being just ridiculous and outlandish and sounding like a character, exactly. Yeah, so you
0: are you seem like you're fairly extroverted. Um, this is one of the things that we've kind of talked about with artists on the show and having to like talk about your work and how you know, like, yeah. you work you know, on, on books by yourself. And like, it's a very, um, solo thing. And then you have to go out and talk about your books and do these book events and all this stuff. Do you enjoy doing that? Is it something you
3: have to like make yourself do? I would say that, um, 2020 taught me how much I do enjoy it because Mm -hmm. it was taken away from me then. And, um, when I wasn't able to do it, I realized how much I missed it talking to you. Readers, talking to other writers, I've, I've realized that it does fill up my well well in mm-hmm. a certain way. On the other hand, um, I know I seem extroverted when I do this, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know how these things work. I don't know what my personality test is or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. But I think it started with an eye, you know, when I mm-hmm. long ago took it. Because I do find it um, it takes a lot of energy for me. Like mm-hmm. when I go home tonight, just being honest, I will it'll be... I'll be almost like I'm I'll just be done probably yeah you know yeah. um and I and I really I really came to notice it I was teaching a class uh, at UNCW in Wilmington North Carolina teaching the uh, creative writing class there and it would be uh, it was, you know it's two it was a workshop one day a week but it's pretty long you know it's two or three hours I forget how long it was and then it would be right about my normal writing time so I would go to go write just like I normally would and it was the uh, I would just sit there and stare at the computer and be like yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just so you drained. know yeah. i was so drained yeah, yeah. um uh, and so i think that i'm one of those people that is able to rise to the occasion and do it but not all the time that's yeah. fair you know?
0: i think that's how i am i mean and like i've been to several of your events and you're actually really great at doing it um like the uh when you spoke at the Savannah Book Festival this past um, festival, like I came into the room after you were done and everyone was just raving about oh. you, which it made
1: I was like my little boys all grown up. I <laughs> think How big was the crowd were you?
3: It was not huge. I would say it was uh, it was pretty strong though, probably yeah. forty folks or something like that. Yeah, I mean great. it was it yeah. was it was a, it was yeah. a
0: good uh, yeah. audience, but they just they were They loved you, like I mean, like they thought you were amazing, and you know they're not wrong. I'll (laughs) say
3: I've um, I've worked hard on doing a good job of it because it is part of the job, Mm -hmm. and man, I mean it can be a snooze fest when an author's not very good at it, or they just read from their work with like no tone, no not doing the characters' voices or the accents well, and they just read too long. So I've tried to be good at it, and generally, like when I have a new book coming out, I'll get some friends together and I'll say, all right, I'll buy you dinner in return. You know, (laughs) you've got to listen to me, like do my spiel and read and give me feedback on it. And that was really helpful. You know, the
0: fact that you care enough to actually work on that and don't just
1: like show up and, you know, just just look down at your book and not even look up.
0: Yeah. I think that says a lot. I think, and I think you can tell that, you know, this is something that you, you care about, you know?
1: Also, and you're Southern, so storytelling is a tradition. It's it's in the soul. It's true. (laughs) Um, I kind of wanted to ask, I know earlier you said that you have a routine every day of going to different places and writing, and Mm -hmm. I was wondering if that's like when you're out in public, I don't know if you mean coffee shops, but it's like you're listening to other people and looking at them, and if that kind of gives you a little inspiration and you take from it and it helps you write.
3: Um, Honestly, not so much. I generally, when it's going really well, I'll realize that I have not known what was going on around me for a while like you could probably have stolen my bike right out in front of me like you could probably (laughs) come up behind me and made bunny ears if i'm really into it uh it's like i'm not there um it is not always that way at all because i'm not always able to kind of get to that point yeah but i am kind of in my own uh in my own world a little bit i put on the big over ear headphones and i'm pretty into it you know um
1: so how come you go out in public to write then
3: That's a good question. Um, I think a few different things. One, at a a formative time, I read, you know, like Hemingway's Immovable Feast, and there was this idea of writing in cafes, and Mm -hmm. that somehow seared into me. Yeah. But even before I read, read that, I would just... I've always loved cafes and coffee shops and being in them. It's a place like a bookstore that has this, you know, where... It's this place of refuge or something where you can go and you can read and you can write and you can think about these things, and some of the chaos of the outer world is at bay. So, my whole college career was spent reading in cafes, doing the same thing I do now. And I would read well beyond what was on the syllabus. I was trying to read everything I could, and, and I would just go get a coffee and read multiple times a day at different spots. It's, it's funny, it's yeah. kind of what I do now, only like I, I write. I think that's part of it, too. I work from home. So if I rode at home and I work from home, I would literally never leave the house. Yeah. And there were times in my life, um, you know, especially when I was single, that, I mean, the only people that I talked to on a daily basis, unless something out of the ordinary happened, was, you know, the UPS guy, if he was delivering something, the place where I went to go get lunch, and the people at the cafe, you know? So that, that really kind of was my way to socialize in a, and maybe it is a very lonely endeavor. And even though I'm not talking to anyone else, I don't, I feel like I'm out in the world a little yeah. bit. Does that make sense? I totally
1: understand. I mean, yeah, I am pretty similar daily life as you. And it, it is something just to be out there and like soak up just being around other people and not just being in your home alone all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, you feel it.
1: too. being in your house, there are so many
0: distractions just being at home that you wouldn't think are distractions like, cause you have dogs, dogs and dogs. Absolutely. Dogs are like, Hey, what you doing? <laughs> um, or like, you know, like when you're there, you feel like you need to do something else. Like you're like, Oh man, the dishes need to be done or this needs to be done or this. And like, you just like being at your house yeah. can sometimes not be conducive to actually getting things done.
3: Absolutely. And there's something else that keeps you honest because people can kind of see what you're doing at the cafe. So if you're just messing around on YouTube, You know what I mean? (laughs) Or you're, like, playing a video game. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you could do it home very easily. Mm -hmm. You got somebody, they're probably not looking over your shoulder, but it kind of feels like it. Mm -hmm. You know? And most of the places I sit, I think about it. Like, everyone, like, I like to sit at Windows, so everyone in the whole place could look and kind of see what I'm doing. I don't think they do, but... I it think it's like, good. It's like keeps me honest, yeah, it'd be you know. Like being
1: at work yeah. in your cubicle and somebody looks over and sees you on Facebook. What are some of your favorite places around town?
3: Uh, so I go to Perk uh, is my favorite morning place. I okay. go to Foxing in the afternoons, um, usually, and then after that, lots of times I'll go to Starling Yard or Rights when oh, okay. I'm starting to kind of wind down and it's time to have a drink. But I I'll feel like we continue. must live yeah. close to each other. yeah. <laughs> at least your mind. yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: Surprise! Your paths have not yeah. crossed. <laughs> Um, and to be honest, uh, something that I actually write outside almost, okay. uh, where a lot of the time, I, I only sit outside, I'm, I think that I've never sat inside, I've sat inside at Foxy like one or two times ever to okay. work. I sit back out on the patio, I don't know why, but a few years ago, I thought, man, I'm spending all this time inside, and it's beautiful days outside, and I'm not seeing them, because I'm in this cafe, and unless you're right at a window spot... You know, which, yeah. you know, yeah. you may or may not have, depending where you go. I'm missing out. I yeah. said, I'd really like to be outside. So I thought, well, it's going to be hard to ride outside. There's more distractions, temperature, all that stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to try it. And I did it. It was springtime. It was an easier time to do it. Not too hot, not yeah. too cold. And it took a couple weeks before I really got used to it. And then when 2020 rolled around, I was like, thank God I'd already done that because I was like literally writing it. I would go to Troop Square. I'll get a um, coffee to go from uh, um. Fox and Fig and sit in the square yeah. or go to one of the squares in Ardsley Park and sit because like for a while there, nothing yeah, was like
1: I was going to ask, so when you talk about outside, like at Foxy they have plugs outside, but if you're going to go to a square, are you not writing on a
3: computer? I write on a computer, but it's enough time. I'm not generally there enough that I'll run out, okay. and I'm, like, really careful about making sure. I'm, like, obsessive before I leave that everything's charged up, you know? Because, <laughs> um, man, you don't want to get there and realize that, you know, you've got, like, 5% you know, yeah. battery left. Yeah. But I'm really hard on uh, computers, Every actually. My my mom and AJ will tell you that you know I just tend to, I'm hard on
4: objects you know (laughs) door handles
3: (laughs) come off you know things just break around me (laughs) typing yeah smashing so like I I swear a laptop lasts like two years for me so by the time the battery's (laughs) getting bad and doesn't work so like AJ has the same laptop for like a decade right and literally mine. Just, it they just die, it. you know? My
1: laptop right now, I have to have it plugged in all the time, because oh. if it's unplugged, then five minutes later, it right. be yeah. off. Yeah, it's, yeah. what's it's, the, it's the a, point? My laptop is from 2015. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, See, it's like, at note. that point, it's a desktop. So <laughs> <laptop. laughs> <laughs> it is. So I could go to Foxy, where they have the outside plugs, but I yeah. could not go sit in the square.
3: I mean, right. I've already, run, we <laughs> moved here in 2019, and I've already been to Best Buy once and had to buy a new computer, because, you know, <laughs> i just, just...
1: Just running them into the ground. Yep. <laughs>
0: well Keys i mean she's falling
3: I, off you know
0: you're making good use of them yeah <laughs> it's fine. that
1: muscular prose it's like, <laughs> yes
0: it's don't don't like <laughs> it all makes <laughs> sense <laughs> all right well you invoked it earlier yeah
1: it's time for our uh, inside Lipton the actor questions. studio yeah. moment we yeah. each have two standard questions yeah so okay all right so if you, say you're walking down the street and you have, like, your theme music playing in your head to pump you up, what would be your theme music?
3: Um, I would say that it would be Iron Maiden. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I could see that. Um, and that is actually what I've been writing to lately, has been okay. the newest Iron Maiden album, <laughs> uh, strangely yep. enough.
0: Yep. Who in your field has been the most influential
3: on your work? On my work. Mm-hmm. Probably, um, probably Cormac McCarthy.
0: Okay.
3: Um, and that is a a relationship that I've gone back and forth about because there's things that, you know, I'm amazed by what he does. Mm -hmm. And then there are other ways in which I've gone back and not wanted to be too influenced by certain things that he does. Mm -hmm. But I do think that when I came across his work, I came across his work at a formative time, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I think. And um, it, it did blow me away.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I would ask, if you were not doing what you're doing, do you have a second choice profession you
3: would like to do? It would have something to do with motorcycles. Okay. Um, I guess that that's kind of a, a cheat answer because my other part of my life does have to do with <laughs> motorcycles. But that would probably be all of it yeah. if I wasn't doing uh, uh, the riding part. And it's funny because people on one side of my life or another don't don't always know about the other side. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Like the literary world and that motorcycle world. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. And then I, I don't know if this is going to be a difficult question for you or not. Um, as as the, the bookstore person, uh, what book speaks to you the most? Like, and not necessarily like influential in your work, but just for you personally.
3: To be honest i go back to where the wild things are again Absolutely. and again and again i am max yeah. i identify with max at the youngest age that i can remember coming across that book and i still do the world of the imagination wanting to be king of the rumpus among these you know among the wild creatures or something you know mm-hmm. that are partly your own creations i mean all of it the um and being kind of a, a little hellion, I mean, that was me <laughs> in my own way. But that book still speaks to me. I mean, it's, what, 10 or 11 sentences long? And there's just something magic about that book.
1: Well, thank you. This was fascinating. Yeah, Thanks. So you. everybody, Taylor Brown, you have how many books they can choose from to read? Six um,
3: books? Six books. Six, Six books? books?
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.
3: Thank you all for having me. <laughs> Mini <Maybe>
1: interview. <laughs> Hey, this is Tamara Garvey. I'm in City Market and I am with Sabri. Welcome. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. It yes. is a pleasure to have you. You're a City Market staple. This is amazing to be in your space.
2: Oh, and I thank you so much for coming out, you know, and my ancestors thank you as well. Can you tell us where in City Market we find your studio? Okay. Um, again we're at the South End of Savannah City Market. The gallery is Sabri's Gullah Art Gallery. Okay. It's Studio Four, second floor, and it's 309 West St. Julian Street. So um, it's right above Alex Batiste, and also, if yes. you remember the old cigar shop, it's right above there. Yes, that's true, that cigar shop. Um, had, how long have you had this studio? I've been here seven years, seven, seven years. beautiful years. Have you always had the same space? I've always had the same space okay. um, it works for me it's big it's spread out um, even if I work with larger pieces like a 46 by 60 um, it could still accommodate uh, the space so yes yeah I've always been um, in this gallery studio four it's a it's a beautiful space it's got an interesting shape and you have three big windows which is really nice oh yes i got to have my windows yeah <laughs> it's so nice looking out, and you see the people going about there every day. Also, um, they're going into the various galleries and other shops um, at City Market, too, as well. Yeah, you, t-
1: you can take a break and just let your eyes do the little people-watching.
2: Oh, yeah. So you were already a full-time artist, and you were able to just transition and be in here all the time and sell. Exactly. I was teaching school um, prior to coming to City Market, and I decided to leave public education I resigned because I really felt a need to tell um, the story of the Gullah people Mm -hmm. through the arts. And so even now, um, I still do Zoom for colleges and universities and public school, too, as well. And so in so many different ways, it's just a, another uh, form of teaching, Yeah, teaching really through the arts, my art.
1: You get a lot of families come through here. That leads me right into my next question. I was going to ask if you have a memorable interaction with customers. That you all can remember. the time, yeah. all the
2: time. I have customers coming in. In fact, I had one come in this morning. And um, it was uh, a father, a mother. They had three children. The oldest, I think, was 17. They had like a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a seven-year-old daughter. And the daughter kept zooming in on the mermaid. It's a mermaid piece that I have in here. I have several. Mm. But this one um, is called The Waves of Courage. And she kept looking at that piece and then the mother they, um, and the father, they said, we have several of your pieces. And um, we, oh, hadn't, nice. we hadn't been back in a while um, because of the COVID, but we're glad to be back. And they were zooming in back and forth. And then finally, um, I was working on a piece, The Waves of Courage. It's a G-Clay, which is a high-quality reproduction of, um, of The Waves of Courage. And so I was embellishing it, adding the yarn to the hair, um, adding the pine cones for the tail and the little girl just kept looking at the piece, and then finally the mother said, "I gotta have that piece." Aww. And the little girl said, "Please, please, me. And so um, the father said, "I love it too." And they were all on the same page, mm-hmm. which an artist loved to hear. That
1: yeah, whole family. The whole family, and, uh, the sure whole
2: family. <laughs> and so um, they ended up buying the piece that I was working on. And you're just in the middle of doing it, which is in extra the middle cool. of doing it, which is part of the whole uh, process. Um, I believe that it's important for the client to um, the customers to actually see you um, working on the pieces, other than just uh, selling it, yeah. um, it makes it more believable, and also it's it's more um, it gives them more of an intimate process of seeing you doing it. I would like to point out that it is only eleven in the morning, <laughs> and you've already had. But well, you said an amazing interaction and, today. Yes, what a I, great um, day! I, and it happens. It happens, and it almost happens. I would say every day, um, multiple times a day, uh, you get people. It's just the right people come in and um, who are drawn to this type of work which is Gullah. Mm-hmm. It has a Caribbean theme to it. It's very uh, colorful, bold and colors. It tells the story. It's very uh, spiritually connected and it's also referred to as happy art. That's wonderful. Um, I did. I
1: wanted to switch gears a little bit
2: and ask mm-hmm. um, if you can tell
1: us since you've been in the space for seven mm-hmm. years. I know there's, um, there's a huge uh, kind of learning curve when it comes to display and selling to customers can you tell us maybe some like lessons you've learned along the way for the yes space?
2: Um, one of the things that I've learned um, along the way is that um, before the customer uh, even come into your space um, you have to first uh, set up the whole thing um, I have like uh, the incense going yeah. you know different smells going Uh, music, music that relates to the culture, but music that I think would also relate to the customer, most of the customers as well. And then, um, before they even make it into the space, um, to have artwork um, positioned in certain places around, different colors that um, would go with the theme, which is the Caribbean uh, Gullah theme, And so before they even make it into the space, coming down the hallway, many people have said, what is that wonderful smell? Yeah, absolutely. And they said, man, that smell, (laughs) I'm telling you, that smell, it pulled me in from outside. And then once they come inside, they see the different um, assemblages, um, embellishment, the different colors, and how they all come together. And because the artwork is very spiritual, I know that with most of the people who are coming in, the piece that they are drawn to the most is also drawn to them, mm-hmm. and it's gonna bring about healing properties, and sometimes they're standing right in front of the piece that is meant for them. Can you tell us, um, so for the listeners, you have to come in here and see this. This is an amazing space. <laughs> Thank when, you. Usually when are you here open? Um, we're open every day. You're a yeah, worker. I know yeah, I'm a worker. Yeah. I mean, this is serious business. and uh, yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Sabrina. <laughs> this was fantastic talking to you. I hope everybody will come in and see your space and meet you and well, smell I that sense.
2: Oh, well, thank you. And <laughs> I thank you so much for coming in and talking to all of us and uh, taking a look at the Gola art. Here are some fun, upcoming, creative events
1: for the next week. On Wednesday, August 10th, there's I Dreamed a Dream Girl, an evening of show tunes, medleys, mashups, and duets at Club One. On Friday, August 12th, there is Corey Chambers. He's a musician at Foxy Loxy. Friday, August 12th is also Material Girls, an evening celebrating Madonna at Tybee Post Theater. Um, Through August 27th, there's a show at Sulphur Studio. It's Entanglements, a duo exhibition by Matt Toole and Ruth Sykes. And then through September 30th, there's a mobile arts gallery at the WW Law Library. It's an art show called Past Presence, commemorating June...
0: You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5
2: FM. We are Savannah Soundings Community Radio with a Global Soul.